Well, good evening, everyone. I hope that you had a blessed Sabbath day. We had a wonderful worship service this morning, and we talked about Jesus on Armageddon. We had a wonderful lunch together, and now it's good to see you back here tonight. Tonight, our topic is the mark of the beast. And this is a topic that many of you perhaps have been looking forward to. This is the night where we actually look at those clues that the Bible gives us about who the beast is and shows us exactly what the mark of the beast is. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Loving Father, we want to thank you for this wonderful Sabbath day. I want to thank you for all that you have given us today and in learning and growing and Lord uh, we love you because you first loved us and Lord you have pulled us out of the world you set us apart for your good purpose and you have put it in our heart to be here tonight and so we are asking that you would do a work in us and Lord help us to apply your word to our lives Lord we want to escape that mark of the beast so we're praying you'll reveal the deception to us and lord you will help us see with the eyes of god and we pray and ask it in jesus name amen when it comes to this subject of the mark of the beast there are a lot of theories that are out there there are some people that think that it's going to be a tattoo with a 666 on your forehead There are others that are wondering if the mark of the beast is going to be some sort of national identification number where some mastermind is trying to take over the world and uh, going to force everybody into taking that identification. And then there are others that they've heard Revelation chapter 13 talking about the number of the beast and those who accept the mark of the beast and how they can't buy or sell. And they're wondering if it's some sort of barcode, uh, maybe a chip that goes underneath the skin or something like that, and you can't buy or sell unless you have that. And so we've got a lot of different theories out there because there are a lot of different things that have entered into the church, a little error mixed in with truth over thousands of years, and pretty soon you have all of these different ideas that are there. But we want to know what the Bible says, don't we? And so we need to find out what the mark of the beast is, but we need to really go back and ask a more basic question than just what the mark of the beast is. What we need to ask is who is the beast, right? Because in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, it says that no Scripture is of private interpretation. And so we have to let the Bible speak for itself and show us not only who or what the mark of the beast is, but who the beast is. Because we don't want to guess at who the beast is. In fact, we realize that it's not something that we have to guess at. And we're going to see tonight 
that the book of Revelation clearly unfolds who the beast is. But here is something that I really want you to think about. Instead of trying to figure out what the mark of the beast is, all we really need to do is figure out who the beast is, and then we can just go ask the beast, what's your mark of authority, and let the beast tell us. That sounds like a pretty smart thing to do, doesn't it? And we are going to be able to do that. Because the Bible clearly identifies who the beast is. It also identifies what the mark of the beast is and how to avoid receiving that mark of the beast. The Bible is going to answer all of our questions. And whoever the beast is and whatever the mark of the beast is, would you agree with me that we should carefully study the Bible to find all the identifying marks, and only if we can get all of the identifying marks to point at the same place, then we can be pretty certain we have the correct interpretation. Would you agree with that? And so the reason that I say that is because, especially when you look at the number of the beast, 666. There are many people in the world today that have come up with all kinds of theories and they come up with that number based on various things. I've heard of some saying that Ronald Reagan was the beast. I've heard some saying that it's a computer thing and Bill Gates was the beast. And there are all kinds of theories like that. But we are not going to make sure that we have the identification clearly made unless we can put all of the identifying marks together and see if they all line up in the same place. And so that's what we want to do tonight. Because the book of Revelation is a revelation of whom? Of Jesus Christ. That's right. And even though the book of Revelation identifies who the beast is, the book of Revelation is not about the beast. It's not about the mark of the beast. It's not about the false prophet. Even though those things are in there, it is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's who we want to see in this whole thing tonight. And so when we open up the book of Revelation to study it, we find Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you search the Scriptures daily because in them you think you have life, but they speak of Me. And so we want to see Him in everything. You see, the book of Revelation does two things. It reveals Jesus and it exposes Satan's deceptions. And you know, the same thing happened in the days of the Reformation. When the Gutenberg Press came out and Bibles started to be printed and people started reading the Bible in their own language, and when they did and they started studying and learning and growing, in blazing light, Jesus Christ was revealed. And in the blazing light of Christ, Antichrist was also revealed. And so we see that when it comes down to these last days, we have in the light of this final battle between Christ and Satan, we find that the struggle is between true and false worship. We talked about that this morning, didn't we? We have those who worship the beast and we have those who worship 
Jesus. And the beast worshipers are marked. And Jesus' worshipers are sealed. And so the final crisis around the mark of the beast is centered on worship. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13, Revelation's the last book of the Bible. We've already looked at this first beast of Revelation 13, but I want to look at him again. Revelation chapter 13, and I want you to notice what it says in verse 1 and 2. John says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns were ten crowns, and on his head a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority." Now here we see that John in vision sees this dreadful beast coming up out of the sea, right? And it talks about the dragon giving him his power, his seat, and great authority. And so we need to understand these symbols in what they mean in order to interpret the prophecy. And so let's look at the Bible and see what it tells us. In Revelation chapter 17, verse 15, it says, "...the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues." And so here we see that in Bible prophecy, water represents a densely, richly populated area where there's lots and lots of people. And so that's the Bible interpreting itself and telling us what the sea is. You've got this beast coming out of the sea, and the sea is water. It represents a richly, densely populated area. And so we see that that's that symbol there. Then when we go and let the Bible speak again of itself, in Revelation chapter 13, we just saw that John sees this beast coming up, but it's got characteristics of some other beasts. Did you see that? It had the characteristics of a leopard and a bear and a lion. Right? Now I want you to think about something for a minute because you'll remember that in our previous meetings we went through the vision that Daniel had in Daniel chapter 7 and you'll remember that Daniel 2, 7, and 8 are parallel prophecies, right? And in Daniel chapter 2 we had the metal man with four metals representing four world ruling empires. And then in Daniel 7 we had four beasts representing those same four world ruling empires. But remember what those beasts were that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7. He saw a lion and a bear and a leopard. And then he saw this great and dreadful beast that had iron teeth. You remember that? So I want you to compare that to what we just read in Revelation 13, and I want you to realize what's going on here. You have Daniel back in ancient Babylon, and Daniel is looking out into the future. 
And he sees those four world ruling empires. He sees the lion, which represents Babylon. He sees the bear, which represents Medo-Persia. He sees the leopard, which represents Greece. And he sees the dreadful beast, which represents Rome. Right? Now, we have John having a vision. And he's looking at the same beasts in opposite order. He's looking in the past. And so he sees this dreadful beast which has remnants of the leopard, the bear, and the lion. And so he's seeing them in opposite order. Daniel was looking forward in time. John is looking backwards in time. And they're seeing the same thing. But now in Revelation, John is seeing Rome present day, right? The Romans occupied the world in the days of the apostles. And so he sees Rome as the beast, but he sees that Rome has remnants because water represents multitudes, peoples, nations, and tongues. It represents a richly, densely populated area. So if you have a beast which represents a kingdom, then you have a nation coming up in an already populated area. So what do you have there? You have one nation conquering another nation. And that's exactly what happened with those nations. And we see in Daniel 7.23 that it clearly shows us that a beast represents a kingdom. Right? And so you have one kingdom conquering another. And we know that Babylon was conquered by Medo-Persia. And Medo-Persia was conquered by Greece. And Greece was conquered by Rome. Right? And so you have one nation conquering another, and that's the symbology of this beast rising up out of the sea. And so John sees this great dreadful beast, and clearly in Bible prophecy we see that a beast represents a kingdom. It represents a political or religious power. And the problem that many people have is this little bit of error that has been mixed in with truth over thousands of years, and pretty soon it's being taught as truth. And the error that was introduced by the apostate mother church when the Reformation happened, you have Luther nailing his 95 theses to the wall and the Reformation began, but what really poured fuel on the Reformation is when the Reformers, many different men in many different areas of the world, started to realize that the very church that they were fighting against was none other than Antichrist. And that poured fuel on the Reformation. But now the apostate church 
instead of correcting their errors, now they start coming up with alternative theories of who the Antichrist is, and that error creeps into the church. And the problem that you have today is many people have bought into that lie, and so now you have many people that say, no, the Antichrist is some sinister man who comes on the scene at the end of time. And so they are being deceived, they are being misled by this beast. And of course, we talked about this already, nearly every single Bible commentary out there says that the first beast of Revelation 13 is Antichrist. And we also talked about how that little horn of Daniel chapter 7 is Antichrist, right? And so we have Daniel 7 and Revelation 13 working together. They are companion books to help us see who Antichrist is. And we see that these four beasts represent four kingdoms. And they are political and religious powers. And according to the Bible then, a beast is not a symbol of an individual person. Right? So there's no way that that theory of today that's so popular taught that it's an individual man at the end of time, there's no way that that can be. The Bible very clearly showed us that the fourth beast was a fourth kingdom. And so it's not talking about an individual. And as the Bible describes this beast in Revelation 13, I want you to notice that in verse 2, it's going to give us a very important clue as to who this beast is. It says, "...the dragon gave him his power, his throne..." and great authority. So whoever this beast power is, he gets his authority and his power from who? From the dragon. And I heard many of you say Satan there. Now we need to remember, we already talked about this in Daniel chapter 7, that the lion represented Babylon. The Bear represented Medo-Persia, and the leopard represented Greece, and then you have this dreadful beast that represents Rome. And so as we look at those things, we need to realize that this beast is getting his power from the dragon. Now I want to show you something here. Look with me in Revelation 12. Just one chapter earlier, Revelation 12, and we've got to figure out something very important here about this dragon. Notice what it says in verse 4 and 5. It says, His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to His throne. So we already know that this child is who? Jesus Christ. That's right. He is the one who is to rule the world with a rod of iron. And after His crucifixion, He ascended up into heaven and He is there seated at the throne of God, right? And so clearly, this is the dragon 
trying to kill Jesus at His birth. Now, we know from the Bible already, you can go to Revelation 12, 9, and you can see clearly that the dragon represents Satan, right? But we also know that the dragon is a deceiver. He does not work out in the open. He works behind the scenes, and he's always working through human instrumentalities. And so in Revelation 12 we see the dragon that was standing before the child to kill him. But who was it that tried to kill Jesus when he was born? It was Herod who was representing Rome. And that was Rome before it was Christian. And so here we see that ultimately the dragon represents Satan, but the dragon also represents those human instrumentalities that he's working through. And in this case, it's pagan Rome. Are you with me on that? Okay, so as we go through this, we see uh, all of these signs that point us to pagan Rome. You'll remember that it was a Roman official, Herod, who passed a decree that all male children to and under should be killed. And so even though it ultimately represents Satan as the dragon, it also represents those he's working through. And so this, in this case, pagan Rome. You'll remember that it was a Roman governor, Pilate, who sentenced Christ to death and ordered his crucifixion. It was a Roman emblem that sealed Jesus' tomb and there were Roman soldiers that guarded it. And so in Revelation 13, the dragon is representing pagan Rome who, it said, gave his power, his seat, and his authority to the beast. Isn't that right? So, who did pagan Rome give its authority and throne and seat to? It was to the beast, which we know is Antichrist, right? So, look with me again in Revelation 13, verse 2. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And so here we have this beast power being given his power and authority from pagan Rome. It's very important for us to understand that. Now I want to give to you six identifying characteristics of who this beast is from the book of Revelation. You'll remember that we already looked at this beast and we already saw seven identifying characteristics in Daniel chapter 7, right? And now we're going to see that Revelation chapter 13 is going to give us six of those same identifying characteristics. So let's take a look at it. The first thing that we see is this beast receives his power from pagan Rome. Now, I want to take you to one of the most learned professors of all of Roman history and to see if history lines up with Bible prophecy. We're going to look at something that Professor Labianca, who taught history for many years at the University of Rome, to see the observation that he made. 
he says to the succession of the Caesars, that's pagan Rome, came the succession of the who? The pontiffs of Rome. What's another way of saying pontiff? The Pope. That's right. So here we see that the dragon, pagan Rome, is giving his power to the beast. And we see here that that was the pontiff, wasn't it? So we have pagan Rome giving its power, its seat, and great authority to papal Rome. He goes on to say, when Constantine left Rome, that was the Roman emperor, he gave his seat to the pontiff. Now, the Bible says that it was the dragon that gave the beast his power, right? And so here we see this clue of who this beast is. Here's the thing we need to understand. The Roman Empire was falling apart in the time of Constantine. It was crumbling from within. And Constantine recognized that his empire was soon to be overthrown by the Germanic tribes that were invading from the north. This is at the time when Rome was being dissolved into the ten nations of Europe. And these Germanic tribes were going down through there and they were dividing it up. And you'll remember that we talked in Daniel chapter 7 about that little horn And he came up among ten, but then it said that he uprooted three of the ten. You remember that? And so what we're seeing here now through history is that the Roman emperor sees that these Germanic tribes are coming and invading and they're dividing up Rome. And the pontiff is fighting against that. The papacy is fighting against that and they're uprooting some of them. But pagan Rome, Constantine, sees that his empire is about to be overthrown. And it's being divided up. And so Constantine flees Rome and he goes to Turkey and he establishes Constantinople as his new headquarters and capital city. At the same time, when he's leaving Rome, rather than leaving it without a visible leader, he gives his seat, his power, his authority, his government to the Pope of Rome. And here is a picture of him giving that power and authority to the Pope. And you can read about that in just about any history book. And you can even see many pictures like this that they show of Him giving even His crown to the Pope. I want to read to you something from Stanley's History, page 40. He says, "...the popes filled the place of the vacant emperors of Rome, inheriting their power, prestige, and titles from where? From paganism. The papacy is but the ghost of the deceased Roman Empire sitting crowned upon its grave. That's what Stanley says in his history book. So here we see clearly that the beast is not a person, but it is a religious, political 
system. And tonight we are going to look at the clear teachings of the Bible. The Bible makes the identification of this beast power plain and history confirms it. Now, I want to point out to you, and I want to make sure that you understand that it is not my goal or my desire to in any way offend anyone or to hurt anyone or any individual or group. What we need to realize is that there are many fine people in the Roman Catholic Church. There are many people in that church that love Jesus. They are committed Christians. And we have to realize that this prophecy is not talking about individual members of the Roman Catholic Church, but it is talking about a hierarchy of the church that has abused its power for centuries and is even doing so today. And so we see that this beast is not a person. This is a corrupt Christian church religious and political system. And so the beast of Revelation 13 describes this religious political system that grew up out of Rome. And it would gradually compromise the truth of God's Word. Error would creep into the church. Tradition would become more important than the Bible. Pagan practices would come in and you have this error mixed with truth over thousands of years and pretty soon nobody even questions it or no one even knows where it came from. Traditions would slip into the church. And here's the thing. The Protestant reformers saw the errors of the church, many of them, and they came out of the church. That that wasn't their intention at first. When Luther nailed his 95 theses to the wall, he didn't want to leave his church. He loved his church. But he wanted the church to reform. He wanted the church to fix the errors. But in the blazing light of the Bible, as people are reading it, they're realizing they see the glory of Christ and at the same time they realize that the very church that they're fighting against is none other than Antichrist. And so now they come out of the church, but unknowingly they brought some of the errors of the church with them. By the time you get to 1517 when Luther nailed his 95 theses to the wall, they had already been practicing Sunday worship for over a thousand years. And there were many other things that they had done. And so they were coming out. Truth was being restored, but not all the truth was restored at one time. It was going to take some time to unravel and reveal all of the error that was actually there. They didn't even realize how much error there was. But they started to come out. And so let's look at these characteristics of this first beast of Revelation 13. Verse 8 tells us, All who dwell on the earth will worship Him. And so we see that this church 
would start off small, but eventually it would become a worldwide religious power. And we know that the Roman Catholic Church has done that, right? The third characteristic, if we look at verse 5, says, And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. Now, we've already talked about this. When we think of blasphemy, we think of somebody denying the existence of God or speaking of God in a profane way, right? But we need to let the Bible interpret itself. We need to have the Bible define blasphemy for us. Because we don't want to come up with our own interpretation. We've got to understand what blasphemy truly is. And if we look at John chapter 10... Jesus said to the Jews, For which of my good works do you stone me? And notice what they said to Him. They answered Him saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. And so here we see the first biblical definition of blasphemy is claiming to be God, claiming to be equal with God, having the prerogatives of God, or being God's representative on earth. And so that's the first definition of blasphemy. And I ask you the question, does the Roman church make that claim? Do they claim to be God's representative here on earth? Do they claim to have the authority and the power of God? And according to the biblical definition, that's blasphemy. I want to show you something from the Pope himself. I want to show you a quote from the encyclical letters of Pope Leo XIII. Notice what he said. We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? There he says, I am God. That's what he is saying. And the history of the Roman church speaks for itself. Now let's look at another aspect of blasphemy. In Mark chapter 2, verse 7, the people said as they were listening to Jesus, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so here's the second biblical definition of blasphemy, and that's for a mere man to claim that they can forgive sins. Now they accuse Jesus of claiming to be equal with God and claiming to be able to forgive sins, and it would have been blasphemy except for one small detail. He's God. Okay, but if a mere man does this, then it's blasphemy, right? Now, I want to show you something from Dignity and Duties of the Priests, volume 12, page 2. This is a volume of books that is given to every Catholic priest that they have to study and learn and understand their duties. It's called Dignity and Duties of the Priest. Notice what it says in there, page 2 of volume 12. 
God himself is obliged to abide by the judgment of his priest and either not to pardon or to pardon. According as they refuse or give absolution, the sentence of the priest precedes and God subscribes to it. What's this saying? It's saying to their Catholic priest, you are the one who decides whether or not to forgive someone of their sins or not. And when you decide, God has to go along with it. That's what it's saying, right? God is going to just say, oh, well, if that's what you say, okay. That's what they're saying. Friends, that is blasphemy, right? All right, we realize, don't we, that Jesus is our only high priest. He stands before the throne of God. He is our only Savior, our only Redeemer. And the book of Revelation is leading us back to Jesus and away from this man-made system of religion that is filled with human tradition and error and pagan practices. So the third identifying characteristic of the beast is that he claims equality with God and claims to be able to forgive sins. And that's blasphemy. The fourth characteristic is found in Revelation 13.7 and it says it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Let me rephrase that in just one word. Persecution. Right? He was given power over God's people and he makes war against them. This is persecution. And this power would lead to a union of church and state in a time period called the Dark Ages and Bible-believing Christians would be condemned to death for their beliefs. If you didn't believe what the church told you you had to believe... You were called a heretic and they came and they took your life. And does history bear this out? You would have to be a tyro in history to say you didn't know. A tyro is a beginner, right? You would have to be a beginner in church history not to realize that the Catholic Church persecuted God's people during that time of the Dark Ages. A very conservative estimate is that 50 million people lost their lives. That's a conservative estimate. Now, you may ask any church historian, did church and state unite under Rome and persecute those who did not go along with their teachings? And the answer is absolutely. Every historian out there is going to tell you, yes, that's exactly what happened. And so the fourth characteristic of this beast is that it is a persecuting power. Friends, the Bible is very, very plain. We see that this issue in the last days is dealing with true and false worship. The Bible is leading us to Christ. It's leading us back to His Word. It's leading us away from the deceptions and the errors and the pagan practices. And it's leading us back to His Word. It's leading us to exalt Jesus in our lives. 
in a way that perhaps we've never understood before. Remember what we read earlier in Revelation 13.5. He was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Now, we already talked about this time period in our question and answer time. You remember that we looked in Revelation 12 and we looked in Revelation 13 and we saw three different time periods. We saw 1,260 days, we saw 42 months, and we saw time, times, and a half a time. And you'll remember how we calculated those out and we saw that all three of those were talking about the same prophetic period of time, 42 months. Now we know that math is an exact science, right? 2 plus 2 is always 4, right? Even though you might use some of that new math that says it doesn't matter what the answer is as long as you can show how you got it. But the right answer is that math is an exact science. It always works. So I want you to notice the mathematical proof of the identity of this beast. Let's look at this 42 months. We already know from our previous studies in Bible prophecy that a prophetic day equals a literal year. And we saw examples of that in Ezekiel 4 and in Numbers 14. And, uh, and so we know that a day equals a year. So if you're talking about 42 months... And we already looked at this in our question and answer time where a biblical month is 30 days. Remember, we went back to the story of Noah. We saw that Noah entered the ark on the second month, the 17th day. And then the ark landed on Ararat on the seventh month, on the 17th day. That's five months and it says it was 150 days. And so in the Bible... A biblical month is 30 days. So if you take 30 times 42, you come up with 1,260 prophetic days or 1,260 literal years. So the prophecy declares that this power would exist for 1,260 years and then suffer a deadly wound, right? And so we know that the Roman Empire gradually fell apart. It started crumbling in about 356 A.D., but by 476 A.D., it was starting to be divided up into those ten divisions of Europe. Now, we also talked about that little horn who was going to pluck out the three And if you go and you do a search of history, you'll see that the last of those three remaining Germanic tribes was destroyed, annihilated, wiped out by the Roman papacy in 538 A.D. That's what history shows us. So if you do the math and go 1260 years it will take you to A.D. 1798. So if the prophecy is true, we should see something in history to confirm that, right? 
something where this Antichrist power, this beast, is going to receive a deadly wound. Now, let me ask you a question. Who was the great political leader of Europe in 1798? Anybody remember? It was Napoleon, right? You can go and you can look through history and you can see that. And Napoleon looked south and he felt challenged by the Pope of Rome. And so he sent his general, Berthier, to take the Pope captive. And so Berthier entered Rome in 1798 exactly as the prophecy predicted. He took the Pope captive and he brought him back to France and the Pope died in captivity in France. Now here's the thing. The Roman church still had ecclesiastical authority. It was still a church, but now with the taking captive the Pope, now they lost all of their political power. And so it received that deadly wound. And so what does history tell us about this remarkable event? I want you to notice this statement out of a book called Church History, page 24. It says, The murder of a Frenchman in Rome in 1798 gave the French an excuse for occupying the eternal city and putting an end to the papal temporal power. The aged pontiff himself was carried off into exile to Valence. The enemies of the church rejoiced. The last pope, they declared, had resigned. And here we see that the prophecy was perfectly and accurately predicted and history proves that it was fulfilled. The papacy received that deadly wound when the Pope died in captivity in 1798 and the church lost its political power. But what does the Bible say? Look with me in Revelation 13, verse 3. The Bible says, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. This is the deadly wound that the papacy would receive in 1798. But then it says, And his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. Now let's fast forward that to today. What did we read in the book of Revelation? All of the world wonders and follows after the beast. That's what happens in the end of time, right? So how did this deadly wound heal? This is the verse, verse 3, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. The Bible says that the beast power would reign for 1,260 years. We saw that that began in 538. We saw that it ended in 1798, right on time. The prophecy was precisely fulfilled. But sometime in the future, that deadly wound would be healed. 
And if you go and you do a study of history, you'll find out that that deadly wound was healed in 1929. In 1929, Mussolini was the head of Italy, the head of Rome. And it's a very popular thing in history. It's easy to find. You can find for yourself what happened in that year of 1929 was that Mussolini gave the papacy political power once again. He gave them political power over Vatican City. Now, this doesn't compare to the political power that they had for that 1260 years when they ruled the world. But it was the beginning of that deadly wound being healed. And history and even current events today indicate that the Roman papacy once again is prominent in world politics. And we're going to talk about this in coming nights. I don't know if you've seen this in the local news, but the Pope is doing some very important things in politics today. We're going to talk about that later. Number five, this power would reign for 1,260 years, and we saw that already. But I want you to notice in Revelation 13, verse 18, it says this, Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, his number is 666. Now, I hope that you realize that in the Bible, numbers are very important. The number seven indicates perfection or completion. And the number six indicates apostasy or rebellion. So we need to figure out what this mysterious number 666 is or where it comes from. One of the official titles of the papacy is Vicarious Philidei. That's Latin. And what that means is vicar of the Son of God or vice God. Okay, so here is the papacy claiming that they are God's representative here on earth. By the way, the Bible's very clear that Jesus Christ's representative here on earth is the Holy Spirit. When Jesus was about ready to go back to heaven, he called his disciples together and he told them, I'm not going to leave you as orphans, but I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit who will teach you all things about me. He's not going to speak of Himself. He's going to represent me. And so the Holy Spirit from the Word of God is Christ's representative on this earth, not the papacy. But I want you to realize that we are talking about the head of this beast, right? And so we need to look to see, because it says it's the number of a man... We need to look, and here's the head of this beast, and he has an official title. Now, if you take the Roman alphabet, you'll discover that every letter 
has a numerical value. Some of them have a numerical value of zero. Some have other numbers. And so if we take this name, Vicarious Philidae, and we look at the numbers associated with the alphabetical letters, you'll see that Vicarious comes up to 112. Philai comes up to 53. Dei to 501. And you add them all together, you get that number 666. Now here's the thing, friends. If this was the only thing that we had to identify this beast as the papacy, that would be pretty flimsy. But we have seen six identifying marks and they all point to the exact same place, don't they? This power that would grow up out of Rome would first get its authority from pagan Rome. Did the papacy do that? Yes, it did. Second, it would be a worldwide power of worship. Is the Roman Catholic Church a worldwide church today? By the way, Catholic means universal. Right? It's a universal church. Third, its leaders would claim equality with God and the ability to forgive sins. The Roman church and priest prelates do exactly that today. Number four, at times this church would persecute. It's done it in the past and it's going to do it again in the future. Number five, it would be a power that would reign for 1,260 years and then receive a deadly wound, but that deadly wound would be healed. Again, the prophecy has been fulfilled. And then it has this mysterious number 666. I want to show you one more clue to who this is. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. We see six clues here in Revelation, but let's look at one more, Daniel chapter 7. 10.29, Daniel chapter 7. And I want you to notice what it says in verse 25. It's talking about the little horn, which is the Antichrist. It says he shall speak pompous words. Some Bible translations say he shall speak blasphemy, right? We've already seen that as one of our clues. He speaks pompous words against the Most High. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High. We've seen that. That's number four. And shall intend to what? Change times and laws. And so here's our seventh clue. And we've already looked at this, haven't we? We've already seen that the papacy would seek to change times. And that, if you look at the original text, that's repeated points in time. And they changed Sabbath worship corporately from the Sabbath to Sunday. They changed times. And then it says, and law. And we also talked about how they took the second commandment out, took the other and moved them all up, and then took the 10th commandment, split it in two, making it the 9th and the 10th, so there were still 10 commandments. And so here we see from Revelation chapter 13 and from Daniel 7, seven clues to who this beast is, and they're all pointing to the same place, aren't they? They're all identifying 
the Roman Catholic Church, and specifically the papacy. Now, that brings us to a point where we need to talk about the mark of the beast because now we've identified the beast. Now, how do we describe this mark of the beast? Whatever the mark of the beast is, we need to realize that it's going to be opposite of God's seal because the devil is a counterfeiter. Right? He's a deceiver, and all he does is take what God does and twist it and make it into something else. And so we are talking about an organization that arises which has a mark or a sign of its authority. And so to understand the mark of the beast then, we must first understand the seal or mark or sign of God. You see, the issues that we are studying are of enormous importance. They have to do with the final battle between good and evil, this crisis that is going to be of global proportions. So let's go back to Revelation, but this time let's go to chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, and I want you to notice what the Bible says in verse 2 and 3. Revelation 7, verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the what? The seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. Now, when we're talking about the seal of God and the mark of the beast, I want you to realize that we're comparing those two, right? On one hand, we're talking about the mark of the beast. On the other hand, we're talking about the seal of the living God. Now, I want you to notice here that the mark of the beast can be received on the forehead. Now, when you're talking about the forehead, you're talking about what's behind the forehead. The mind, right? And so those who take the mark of the beast, there are going to be some who, even though they may realize that the beast is in fact antichrist, they're still going to have their allegiance with the beast. And so they're going to decide in their minds that they have allegiance with the beast. And so that mark is on the forehead. But there will also be people who may not truly understand all of these issues that we've been talking about, and they are going to be deceived into taking the mark of the beast. They are going to do it, but they don't understand all of the issues, and as far as they can see, it's the right thing to do. And so they do it on the forehead. But then it also says, or on the hand. 
Now the hand represents our actions, right? It's what we do. And so someone who takes the mark of the beast on the hand is not necessarily someone who agrees with the beast, not necessarily someone who is deceived by the beast, but this is someone who is coerced or forced to take the mark of the beast. They are going to be told you will not be able to buy or sell unless you take this mark. So they don't necessarily agree, but they're going along with it because they don't want to face the consequences. And so you can get this mark of the beast either on the forehead or on the hand. But I want you to notice that when it comes to the seal of God, it's only on the forehead. Right? That's because God never forces. God never coerces. And so those who take the seal of God are going to be those who purposefully choose to surrender their will to God. Purposefully choose to give Him their allegiance to worship Him according to the way in which He has asked us to worship Him. Because remember, it's about true worship and false worship, right? And so they accept that sign of God freely. And so what does it mean when it has a sign or a seal or a mark? I want you to notice what it says in Romans 4, verse 11. It says, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness. And so in the Bible, a sign, a seal, or a mark are all the same thing. And I ask you the question, where is God's seal found? Well, think about that for a minute. Where do you normally find something that is sealed? Normally on a legal document, right? You have a notary that puts their stamp on there. That's their seal, right? And that makes that document official. And so we see God's seal in His legal document. His Ten Commandments. That's where we're going to find the seal of God. Notice Isaiah chapter 8, verse 16 says, Seal the law among my disciples. Here we see God's seal is found in His Ten Commandments. And so what is God's seal? What is His sign? What is His mark of authority? Why is it that we should worship Him? I want you to notice here in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12, God says, Moreover, I also gave them My Sabbaths to be a sign between them and Me. The Sabbath commandment is God's seal of authority. Why should we worship Him? Because He's our Creator, right? That's His seal or sign or mark of His authority. Why does He deserve to be worshipped? Because He's our Creator. The Sabbath symbolizes worship of God who created heaven and earth. It reveals our allegiance to God. 666 
symbolizes something opposite. It symbolizes man's rebellion in changing God's law, which is His sign, seal, or mark of authority. So a royal seal always contains these three things. The name of the person, their title, and their territory. Right? So you might say to me, how do we know that God's fourth commandment is His seal or His mark of authority? I want you to notice that God has a seal and it shows us it in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. The fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For in six days the Lord, that's His name, made, that's His title, Creator, and His territory, the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. So here we see God's seal, His mark of authority in the fourth commandment. Then it goes on to say, Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and He hallowed it. So right there in the heart of God's law, God's Sabbath commandment authenticates the entire Ten Commandments. Because I want you to think about this for a minute. If God is not the Lord, if He is not the Creator of the universe, and we read His commandment that says, you shall not kill or you shall not steal, we could say, who says that? Right? If you take the fourth commandment out of the Decalogue, this podium could be your God. That table, that chair could be your God because that commandment is the only one who identifies God and why we should worship Him. Because He's the Creator of heaven and earth. And so if you take that commandment out, just about anything could be your God. And so it is God's seal. And it contains His name, the Lord your God. It contains His title as Creator. And it contains His territory, heaven and earth, the seas and the springs of water. That's why God says in Ezekiel 20, verse 20, Hallow, or keep holy, my Sabbaths, and they will be a sign or a seal or a mark between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. God says, that's my sign of authority. That's my seal of authority. That's my mark of authority. The Sabbath is God's sign of loyalty or faithfulness to the Creator. The Sabbath is God's mark. It is His symbol so that we know that He is the Lord. He is the Creator and He is asking us to worship Him in a very specific way. His domain is heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of water. And if you think about that for a minute, if you take out that fourth commandment, if you take away His seal, anything can be your God. You see, the central issue regarding the mark of the beast is worship. 
The issue is true worship on one hand and false worship on the other. And God is going to have a group of people at the end of time who worship Him as the Creator, Lord God, by keeping all ten of His commandments. And the fourth commandment is a sign of our allegiance to Him. So if the Sabbath is the sign or mark of God's authority, then what is the beast's sign or mark of authority? Remember what I said. All we got to do is figure out who the beast is and then just go and ask them, what is your mark of authority? And let the beast tell us And we don't have to guess. So what does the Roman Catholic Church claim as its sign of authority? I mean, it's only fair that we ask them, right? And let them tell us. So I want you to notice something that the beast said in the Catholic record, September 1st, 1923. Sunday is our mark of authority. The church is above the Bible, and this transference of Sabbath observance is proof of that fact. Friends, those words come directly from the mouth of the beast. My sign of authority is the fact that I changed God's holy day from Saturday or Sabbath to Sunday. And I want you to notice what's going on here. It says this transference of Sabbath observance is proof of that fact. You know what that's called? It's called cyclic reasoning. Let me give you an example of that. If I said to you, Spam is the greatest meat there ever was because there was no meat that has ever been greater. You would say to me, you haven't proved anything, right? And you'd be right. But the same thing is happening here. The fact that we change the day proves that we have the authority to do it. That's what they're saying, right? But just because they changed it doesn't mean they have the authority to do it. And so you can discover these quotes for yourself in historical references. God's mark is the Sabbath. The Roman church claims that the mark of its authority is worship on the first day of the week, Sunday, and not the Sabbath. I want you to notice here a statement from the rectory at St. Catherine's Church. This was in their newspaper, May 21st, 1995. Perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church ever did happened in the first century. The holy day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to Sunday. Not from any directions noted in the Scriptures, but from the church's sense of its own power. Did you catch that? But from the church's sense of its own power. People who think that the Scriptures should be the sole authority should logically become Seventh-day Adventists and keep Saturday holy. 
That's right from the mouth of the beast. And you know what? I agree with them. If you're going to be a Bible-believing Christian, if you are going to put your trust and faith in the Word of God, you have a mother church that is corrupt who has spawned harlot daughter churches that have taken that error with them. And in the last days, God has only one church that keeps all of the commandments of God. And the beast himself says you should go there. I think it's a pretty powerful argument. The question that we might ask is what should we do? And I would say to you tonight that God has a plan for your life. If we are going to truly be Bible-believing Christians, we should worship on the day corporately that God has asked us to worship Him on. Now, there are people that say to me, I worship God every day. My answer to them is, praise God. So do I. You should. But what day has God asked us to come and corporately worship Him on? A day that is a sign of our allegiance to Him. So if we just arbitrarily pick another day, are we really worshiping God? Or are we worshiping a God of our own choosing? That is the question that we all need to answer. Here is what the Bible teaches. There are many Christians who love Jesus but they do not understand the central issue that we have been talking about in this Jesus on Prophecy series. They are faithful Christians, committed to the Lord, and in their hearts they want to serve Christ, but they do not fully understand that they are a part of a corrupt church system that changed God's law and His time of worship from Sabbath to Sunday. They do not understand that this corrupt mother church spawned other church systems referred to in Scripture as harlot daughters. And this apostate church system claims that its mark of authority is tradition and that's over the Bible. And before Jesus Christ returns to this earth, everyone is going to have to make a decision. But the problem is, there is major deception going on in the religious world today, and the beast is deceiving people into taking the mark of the beast rather than keeping the commandments of God. Friends, it is sad. It is heartbreaking to see this happening right underneath our noses. But we don't have to be deceived. God is calling us out of the world. He's calling us out of that corrupt religious system. He's showing us the truth because the Bible says, and the whole world wonders after the beast. But we don't have to be a part of that. 
The final issue of loyalty is centered around worship. And many of us tonight have to face a decision. A decision between truth and tradition. A decision that many before us have had to make. Are we going to follow Christ and the Word of God? Or are we going to follow what is popular? There is a mark of authority that the beast says is theirs. First day of the week worship. It claims that tradition is above the Bible. But God is calling us from the mark of the Roman power. He is calling us back to the Bible. He is calling us to take a stand. And He is calling us to follow the truth. And in every age, God has called men and women to take a stand. Truth was not popular in the days of Noah. Truth was not popular in the days of Daniel. It wasn't popular in the days of Jesus and the disciples. And it wasn't easy to stand for the truth in the days of the reformers. And once again, God is calling His people to take a stand. And today, we are having to make that choice as well. Remember, what is popular isn't always right. And what is right isn't always popular. In the last days, God is inviting us to take a stand. And so that's what I'm sharing with you. It's time to take a stand. But we leave it to you. There is no one here that's going to force you or coerce you. We're simply revealing the truth from God's Word and from history so that you can make an informed decision. And I hope and I pray that you will choose wisely. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, Lord, thank You for revealing truth from Your Word. You are the truth, the way, and the life. And when we find truth, we find You. And the truth sets us free. It sets us free from the deceptions that are going on with all of the error and tradition and pagan practices that have crept into the church a little here, a little there, mixed with truth over thousands of years, and now it's being taught as the truth, and it's all designed to deceive us and trick us into taking the wrong mark of authority. And so, Lord, our prayer is that You give us the strength and the courage to stand for You to make the right choice. And Lord, I pray for everyone here that You will speak to our hearts tonight as we leave. Don't let the devil come in and snatch the truth away. But Lord, help us think on it. Ponder it. Send the angels to minister to us. Help us to reason it out. And Lord, give us the strength to choose for You. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.